This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Three Days by Samantha Hunt, which was published in The New Yorker in January of 2006. The farm is now an island in a sea of big chain stores. While the surrounding farms were plowed under one by one and turned into shopping centers, her parents had stood by. They had waited rather than selling their land, as the neighbors all had. And now, along a 10-mile strip of parking lots, stores, gas stations, banks, and supermarkets, their farm is the last one left. The story was chosen by David Gilbert, who's the author of two novels, And Sons and the Normals. Hi, David. Hi, Deborah. Welcome back. It's great to be back. So, three days came out in 2006, more than 14 years ago, but you told me that you think about it at least once a month. I do think about this story. I mean, I love Samantha Hunt's writing so much, and uh, and all of her stories tend to kind of sink into me and remain in my body because she's such a visceral, physical writer. And um, this story in particular has always stayed with me, and the the feeling of the story will just kind of percolate in strange moments. And sometimes I'll I'll have that feeling where I'm like, I don't know where that feeling is coming from. They'll be like, oh yeah, that's right. That's that's a three days Samantha Hunt feeling. <laughs> what do you think without giving too much away? What do you think is driving that feeling? Well, I think it's her writing in general, which to me just gets under the skin in a really interesting way that I don't see done very often in writing. And she's doing so many interesting things with time and memory. And also, I love very tightly constructed thematic stories. And I think this is one of those stories, too. So it was such a pleasure to return to it in a way in which I was trying to really take it apart a little bit. Because often with those kinds of stories, they can be airless and they can kind of take out the feeling quality that you want. But she does that kind of miraculous thing where it's thematically so tight, but it also is just full of emotion. Um, so it, it's one of those stories that I just marvel at, like much of her writing, where like, how did she do that? And uh, <laughs> so it's it's both like jealousy, profound jealousy. I like, oh, I didn't, I can't do the Samantha Hunt thing. And also just the memory of, of the situations that she comes up with that are always kind of uh, dreamlike, uh, so they kind of become part of your own subconscious. Mm -hmm. What's interesting to me about Three Days is it is so tightly constructed, but you don't realize it when you read it for the first time, until you get to the end. And then yeah. you see that everything was, was leading you there. For sure. And then just how she uses family and myth in such an interesting way. And just the level of control that she has. Going back through it, I noticed more things where I was like, oh, that makes so much sense to have that, you know, particular <laughs> kind of paragraph right there. Yeah. As an editor, you you get to page three and you think, why on earth did they do that here? And let's take it out. And then you get to page 15 and you have to put it back in. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's David Gilbert reading Three Days by Samantha Hunt. Three days. It's starting to get dark. Beatrice walks along the highway from the bus depot up to her family's house. She avoids the roadway by walking just outside the guardrail in the long dry grass that's been matted down by road salt and rain, strewn with trash and the surprisingly bloated body of a dead raccoon. Beatrice imagines that every car and truck passing holds someone she once knew in high school. Inside their cars, they are shaking their heads and asking, Is that Beatrice? What the hell is she doing with a bloated raccoon carcass? Beatrice turns up the drive. She hasn't seen the farm in more than a year. After her father died, she moved away to the city, not for any good reason, just for a change, and now she likes it there. She likes the fact that all the humiliations involved with entering her thirties as a single woman are happening behind her closed apartment door, out of the view of her family and everyone she has ever known. There are some weathered plastic Duane Reed Easter decorations, 
a hip-high bunny rabbit, and a bright green egg wired to the front porch. It is Thanksgiving, and so from the road where Beatrice stands, it appears that, in the time she's been gone, redneck clones of her brother and her mother have moved in and had their perverted redneck way with the house. The farm is now an island in a sea of big chain stores. While the surrounding farms were plowed under one by one and turned into shopping centers, her parents had stood by. They had waited rather than selling their land, as the neighbors all had, and now along a ten-mile strip of parking lots, stores, gas stations, banks, and supermarkets, their farm is the last one left. It isn't much of a farm. Beatrice's parents had given up farming seven years before when, one morning, Beatrice's mother had told her father, I don't feel like getting out of bed. He looked her over and, holding her jaw in his hands, he studied her face for a long while before saying, Yeah, I can see it, right there on your forehead, as if there was some word written across her brow, a word that excused her from farm work for the rest of her life. Within a few weeks, Beatrice's father had become an expert crossword puzzle solver. He'd even considered writing a novel before realizing that soon they would be broke. Beatrice's parents had to start working or sell the farm, and so they made a decision. They leased their land to a conglomerate soybean operation and applied for jobs in the new industrial park. Her father got work as a loan adjuster. Her mother got a job in advertising, working in the satellite office of a company called Mythologic Development, which turned myths and sometimes history into marketable packages used for making new products and ideas more digestible to the consumer public. Her father didn't like having an office job. He used his sick days as soon as he got them, but Beatrice's mother had always been very dramatic, someone who swooned or leaped without provocation, the sort of person who would sing while grocery shopping and then wonder why people were staring at her. She flourished during the brainstorming conference calls that were a regular feature of her new job. She'd dominate the conversation with her patched-together notions of Lita and the Swan, the void of Ginnungagap, the bubonic plague, and Hathor, the Egyptian goddess, whom she re-envisioned as a 19-year-old Ukrainian supermodel spokesperson for a vodka company. Beatrice's parents hadn't been born farmers, Rather, it was one of many bright ideas they developed in their 20s, ideas like dropping out of college in their junior year, forgoing regular dentist visits, and having children, children they decide to name Beatrice and Clement. Right, Clem says after Thanksgiving dinner. He stands to leave the table. He shakes his head at his mother and Beatrice. Clem works as a carpenter, though he's mostly interested in small projects, like cabinets and decks, and hand-carving the names of rock bands he likes into soft pieces of wood. Going to Telk up? Beatrice's mother asks him. He pops his head back inside the kitchen. He is stocky and solid, like a bolted zucchini that has grown too long. He holds a finger and thumb up to his lips, inhaling, pinching together a vacancy in between them. Their mother has put a feather in her hair for the holiday, her Indian headdress. She can't stand it that her son is a pothead, and sometimes she'll get a look, as if she's trying not to cry just thinking about it. She's a very good actress. She stares at Clem. She is drunk. They all are. Beatrice's mother can make her bottom jaw tremble so slightly that the movement is barely perceptible. She looks just like Clem dark hair, red skin, and papery lips. She stares at him with her mouth wide open, waiting for him to feel guilty. Beatrice looks away. It is extremely difficult for Beatrice to think of her mother as someone with thoughts and desires, with plans and schemes, as someone who quite possibly keeps a rimmed rod vibrator in her bedside drawer, the way Beatrice does, as someone who might dream about a tremendous ice cube the size of a sofa, melting in the middle of a hot desert, and wake up having absolutely no idea what the dream means. Someone just like Beatrice. Dude, I'm so stoned, Clem says, laughing once, faking a stumble before disappearing. As he opens the front door, the flat sound of road traffic sneaks inside. Beatrice's mother sighs while Beatrice stands to clear the table. 
She holds the turkey over the garbage by its breastbone, dangling it there while her mother splits what is left in the last wine bottle between their two glasses. When Atlantis was sinking, there was an awful period of, and Beatrice's mother stops to think of the proper word but can't, of sinking, she says, and places her open hands on either side of her face like the sunshine. Her mother resorts to theatrics when she is nervous. Beatrice cringes at the gesture. She knows that her mother is going to try to tell her something she doesn't want to hear. Imagine, her mother says, her hand still in place. People went to sleep inland and woke up with the ocean right there at their door. And when they stepped outside in the morning to pee or to feed their goats, all the neighbors were gone without a trace, and the only sound was waves lapping. Beatrice's mother still works for Mythologic, and now she firmly believes that all concepts are better communicated through specious retellings of ancient myths. Most of the time, Beatrice can't see the connections. Her mother slowly drags a finger across the kitchen table and then does it again. Beatrice remains entirely still, frozen like a field rabbit, hoping that her mother will decide not to tell her whatever it is she wants to tell her. She can already imagine its perimeters. Honey, I wish you would think about a job that offers insurance. Or, I know a real nice young man you might like to meet, B. But he wouldn't be a nice young man. He'd be another 45-year-old divorced actor her mother had met through community theater projects, a man who also holds his hands up around either side of his face like the sunshine when he wants to make a point. Or maybe she wants to tell Beatrice that she is finally going to sell the farm. Beatrice is wrong. Her mother doesn't say anything like that. Instead, she says, When your dad was in the hospital, the doctors gave me a choice, B. She rubs her palms across her skinny thighs, exhaling. The doctor asked me, Do you want to stop his pain? And at first I said, Yeah, of course. But then the doctor asked again, No, do you really, really want to stop his pain? And B, I knew what he meant, and I said, Yes. I killed your dad, B. She is drunk. They both are. You killed him? Well, not me, but the doctor. I told the doctor to go ahead and get it over with. What does that have to do with Atlantis? Beatrice asks. Her mother has to think for a moment. She looks up to the ceiling before asking B. We all have to die sometime. Beatrice stares straight ahead like a TV stuck on static the remote control gone dead. She blinks a series of gray and black squiggled lines. No reception. Nothing. Her mother's words are not getting through. They are stones dropped into a bottomless hole, the hollow known as Beatrice. They fall and fall until they are too far away to be heard. Beatrice watches the unwound egg timer beside the stove until her mother interrupts. You want to watch a movie, hun? The question is like a slap to the side of the TV. The static clears, the program resumes. Beatrice shakes her head. It's a story, Beatrice remembers, about a mother and her kids on a farm in Pennsylvania, a dull, after-school special broadcast for the Thanksgiving holiday. Beatrice studies her mother's face. Beatrice thinks, if I sit in the living room with my mother watching a movie, I will explode, and all that will spill out. All that I will have left inside will be a dark green syrup of boredom that my mother will have to sponge off the floor with some fantastic and a towel. Now, I'm going to see what Clen's up to, Beatrice says. She is still holding the turkey by its breastbone. It has started to sway. Beatrice drops the bird into the trash, and it makes a great swoosh as it falls into the white plastic garbage bag. When Beatrice was a girl, Clement still a baby, in the farm in okay shape, she and her father used to walk the fields at least once a day. The furrows were dry and bulging, and Beatrice liked how it felt when the dirt broke underneath her muck boots. Before the harvest, corn plants rose so far up over her head that, walking under their canopy, she'd lose sight of everything except for her father's legs marching ahead of her. She put her hand inside his, and he'd hold it a bit roughly as if her hand were a tiny mouse he'd captured. She pretended that he was not her father at all, but a boyfriend, 
someone handsome from the movies or TV. He once told her, B, don't say anything to your mom, but I'm the king of all the farmers. They walked on a bit farther and came across an irrigation hose that had cracked its rubber tubing. Her father fingered the leak and stared out at the lands as if he had every intention of coming back and patching up the cracked hose. But he never came back. He just liked to look that way from time to time. Farming, he'd say, takes 10% perspiration and 90% inspiration. Beatrice had always heard this the other way around, but there was a conviction to her father's way of talking. Maybe he was the king. He wasn't a bad farmer. He just didn't do things the way they had always been done. For instance, pruning trees. He had no time for it, or thinning plants. He hated to yank up seedlings that had been eager enough to sprout, and so he'd let the vegetables grow right on top of each other. He let the carrots and the beets twist around each other, deformed by their proximity to other carrots and beets. They still taste just as sweet, he'd say, but no one wanted to buy the bulbous and bent oddities that came from such close-growing quarters. Beatrice's father also rarely wore proper farmer clothing. Instead, he dressed in chinos, button-down Oxford shirts, and canvas sneakers. They're cheap, is all he ever had to say. Beatrice thought her dad looked like James Dean in the movie East of Eden, James Dean riding on a John Deere. He'd hay the fields, and Beatrice would follow along behind him in the trail of the tractor's exhaust. Fumes that made her dizzy gave her a sour stomach. Her head would fill with the sound of Munchkin singing Follow the Yellow Brick Road, because that was what the cut hay looked like. James Dean and the Yellow Brick Road. She would have followed wherever he led her. Outside, the sodium vapor lamps from the shopping center parking lots wash away any definition. Everything on the farm glows the same gray color at night. It makes it difficult to see, and Beatrice trips on an old pig trough that her mother has been using as a planter for impatience. What's up, dude? Her brother asks when she yelps. Clem has converted half of the barn into an apartment where he lives. There are no locks on his apartment because his door is an old cellar hatch from a house that was demolished to make way for Dunkin' Donuts. His kitchen countertops are built from plywood that one of the malls had used to make concrete molds and then tossed. Most of his apartment was built from salvage or from stuff he lifted off construction sites at night. It is a common practice among Clem's friends, Lots of the local contractors steal from the shopping center construction sites, too. This used to be where Matthew Campbell's milking pavilion was, so I guess we can just help ourselves. He wouldn't mind. Let's go downtown, Beatrice says. Let's see if the stores are open on Thanksgiving. All right, I guess, Clem says, uncertain if he wants to go out in the cold, but still enough under the sway of his older sister that he'll do what she wants to do. He detaches himself from his video game. Can I try that first, she asks. This? He holds the controls up. Yeah, yeah, sure, he says, and begins to set it up for her, restarting the game. Do you know how to play? No. I'll start you off slowly, he says, and slips her hand into a glove that is rigged with controls. It is filled with tiny nodes like suction cups. She thinks of the dead raccoon's puckered skin. Sit down, he says, and she does. At first, nothing happens. The screen turns blue and the nodes tickle her hand. She looks around the apartment while Clem fusses with the machinery. The space is tiny, and the walls are mostly covered with shelves and cabinets. Clem moved out of the main house right after high school when he fell in love with a girl named Anna. They lived in the barn together for almost five years, but Anna moved to the city a year ago. She hasn't yet picked up all her stuff, and Beatrice can see some of Anna's clothes, some textbooks she and Clem kept from school, and a nice set of silver that Anna's grandparents gave her. Everything is covered with small balls of dust and bits of old hay from the barn. Sometimes Anna and Beatrice meet up for coffee in the city. They never talk about the farm or about Clem. In fact, they act as though they are survivors who live through some sort of low-budget, straight-to-DVD apocalypse that is too painful, too cheap to mention. 
Finally, the video game starts up. On screen, a woman is walking through a Zen Buddhist garden. She is wearing a tight silver outfit and carries a long sword. That's you, Clem tells Beatrice. Use a glove to go forward. So Beatrice does. She walks through the garden, but slowly, because she knows that at any moment someone is probably going to tiptoe up behind her, wielding some horrible machete, and she has already had a number of glasses of red wine. She's not sure she can fight back. With her hand in the glove, Beatrice can feel the girl walking. It makes her shiver as if someone had cracked an egg on the crown of her skull and the yolk was oozing down her ears and neck as if she were inside the girl's digital skin. Behind her, Clem lights a joint and starts to softly hum the video game's TV jingle, giving Bee a soundtrack. He watches the girl on the screen slowly creep forward and flash the blade of her sword. Beatrice starts to smile and he passes her the joint, which she takes with her ungloved hand. She is very jerky with the controls, and sometimes the girl on the screen suddenly starts to walk backward or just stands there doing nothing, flicking her sword. Beatrice takes a drag and holds the smoke, wondering if the girl in the video game will also get high. There are pathways off to the left and right in the garden, but Beatrice can't figure out how to turn yet. Clem hums the jingle, and Beatrice exhales, imagining a handsome man with a deep radio voice speaking over the hum. The man whispers directly into Beatrice's ear, as if reading her the fine print. He whispers a message that she can't quite hear, though it fills her with longing just the same. A pack of ninja warriors surprises her from above, and after a very short fight, Beatrice is dead. It is colder than most Thanksgivings. The ruts in the driveway have solidified, forming seals of creaky ice. Beatrice and Clem walk to his truck in silence, and she feels as if she were still on screen. She imagines that the video game has somehow sharpened her abilities. She feels as if she could control the world with her hand, sense sounds with her skin. She thinks she can hear her brother's fingers jangling the keys in his pocket. She can even hear her mother's sigh as the commercial break starts. Beatrice hasn't smoked pot in a long time. She thinks she can feel every person who has ever stepped on the driveway before her. Oil delivery men, insurance salespeople, Lenape Indians, everyone. She feels the outline of all these people so precisely that they become solid bodies beneath her feet. She worries that she might be squishing their faces with her boots. Clem pulls his keys from his pocket, and Beatrice has an idea. Let's take Humbletonian, she says, letting go of the truck's door handle. Humbletonian is a horse. When her parents sold the farm animals, they kept a few chickens for eggs and one horse named Humbletonian. Her father named the horse this because she was not a Hambletonian. A Hambletonian is a very distinguished trotting horse. A Humbletonian is nothing. It's like changing your name to Stonerfeller because you're not a Rockefeller. In the trailer? Her brother asks and then answers the question himself. No, you mean we should ride the horse into town, right? Right? Cool, he says, his eyes a bit glassy. They walk back to the barn, breaking the ice again. After their father stopped farming, he liked to take a sleeping bag up to the loft above the horse's stable after dinner. He'd smoke cigarettes up there and spend the night as if he were a boy scout. He thought that the horse's wild nature would make him feel better about working in an office. He thought the horse would soothe the unease inside his ribcage. From the loft, her father used to pretend that he was Jerry Lee Lewis, using an old table saw platform for a piano. He'd sing breathless to the horse, You leave me? Pause. Pause. Breathless. Though her father's odd behavior seemed exciting at the time, Beatrice now thinks that horses aren't wild at all. Horses can't soothe our unease in the world. Horses are about the most broken, unwild creatures in existence, except for maybe burrows and dogs. They do exactly what humans tell them to do. 
So when she thinks of her father sleeping in the loft above his horse or riding humble tonian across their forty acres because he thought it would cure him of that unease in his chest, pity drips from her like a bit of drool out of the corner of her mouth. She thinks, how stupid. She thinks, Dad, that wasn't unease. It was lung cancer. Hello, pumpkin pie, Clem says to the horse. He pets Humboldtonian's nose and rests his own face there for a moment before attaching her reins. The barn smells yellow, like urine and old pine boards. The horse's belly sags in a way that reminds Beatrice of a velora reclining chair. Hello, lazy boy girl, Beatrice says, and also kisses the nose. Humboldtonian does not look particularly happy to see her. Clem puts a hand on the saddle that is straddling the stable wall, but Beatrice shakes her head no. So he leads the horse outside by the reins and crouches down on one knee, keeping the other lifted square. Beatrice uses Clem's knee as a boost and climbs up onto the horse's bare back. Whoop, Beatrice whoops. In a moment, her brother is seated behind her. He is so strong that she barely felt him lift himself up. He wraps his big zucchini arms around her sides, reaching for the reins. Brother and sister are quiet as they trot out to the end of the driveway, through the fields that have been harvested for the year. The sound of dead stalks and frost crunching under Humboldtonian's hooves fills in around the gray quiet of the night. The video game's jingle is still rattling in the back of Beatrice's head. I don't know what she'll think of the road, Clem finally says. I don't, I don't think she's ever been past the far field. Their mother barely uses the horse these days, except when she gets her car stuck in the muddy divots of their driveway and she has to harness Humboldtonian to the bumper to pull while she pushes. But they reach the end of the driveway and Humboldtonian turns left and trots along the breakdown lane as if she can't wait to get down to town, as if there were nothing to it. Out on the road, Humboldtonian's hooves sound like winter, metal on ice or an empty galvanized pail tossed down a stone staircase, a full, complete sound. They pass an abandoned barn that is wedged between two service stations and two narrow swaths of dried red clover. Someone has spray-painted the words Love Shack below a tin sign advertising the Crystal Cave tourist attraction. The land is flat and open here. The road is the straightest road there is. It runs all the way down to where the Pennsylvania Dutch people live in villages that have kooky names like Paradise, Intercourse, and Blue Ball. An 18-wheeled tanker speeds up behind Humboldtonian. The whoosh it makes blows Beatrice a bit to the right. The truck is followed by a car honking its horn to get past the truck. Beatrice turns to look at the car as it goes by, and the man in the passenger seat stares out at Beatrice and Clem and their horse on the highway. The man does not seem surprised to see a horse and riders on the highway on Thanksgiving evening. Rather, he seems angry, unimpressed. He throws his cigarette butt toward them and it explodes against the asphalt like a bomb sized for insects. I just thought that cigarette was an insect bomb, Beatrice says, but then she realizes that Clem will think she means one of those actual bug bombs that you load into your house if the house has fleas before vacating the premises for a few hours. I mean, she says, but a truck passes and then another... And then she decides not to bother with the sublime clarification she is just about to make. Instead, she starts to laugh. Her stomach feels alone and nervous. She cannot stop laughing until she burps a burning red wine burp. She laughs until she thinks she will vomit. I'm going to puke, she says. No, no you won't, Clem answers, and pats his older sister on the back one, two, three times. And he is right. Beatrice leans forward against Humboldtonian's neck, and the warmth of the horse feels good on her stomach. They ride the rest of the way in silence, except for the click of Humboldtonian's hooves and the rush of the horse's warm pulse. One of the myths Beatrice's mother was responsible for developing 
was a fictionalized version of Montezuma meeting Cortez for the first time. Her company had no qualms about taking history and turning it into myth. Her mother's co-workers rarely bothered to differentiate between those things that had actually happened and those things that people just used to say had happened. They'd take history and add to it, and no one knew the difference anymore. For example, they might say that Montezuma could fly through the air carrying three virgins at a time to a sacrificial altar in the sky. They might say that there was bloodshed when these two men met, or that Cortez was part man, part horse. Mythologic development sold the Montezuma-Cortez myth to an amusement park in Maryland, which used it for a roller coaster called the Aztecthon. The concept sold for a good price, but her mother was a salaried employee, and so she saw very little of the money. Now the amusement park owns Montezuma. He is the park's intellectual property. Beatrice's mother keeps a painting of Montezuma over her bed. In the painting, he looks more like a famous movie star than an Aztec ruler. Beatrice's mother likes that about him. She tells Beatrice that she is in love with Montezuma now that Beatrice's father is gone. But Montezuma's also dead, Beatrice says, and her mother smiles as if that were a really good joke. Whoa, Clem says, and Humbletonian turns into the Midland Mall complex. They pass through a very large empty parking lot that is dotted with circles of light. It is freezing cold. Whoa, Clem says again, and Humbletonian clops to a halt outside the Walmart entrance. At the doors, they wait on the horse. Their breath is visible in the cold air. Humbletonian stomps her hoof as though she were asking, what's next? Her motion is detected by a sensor which swings open the door to let them in. The store is not closed. Humbletonian is surprised and takes a few steps backward before she steadies again. Why don't we just ride her into the store, Beatrice asks. Clem and Beatrice would have to duck their heads to make it through the entry, but it would be great. I bet they've never had a horse inside there, she says. Clem is tilting his neck, considering the option, when a security officer stationed by the theft deterrent metal detector station stands to adjust his utility belt. The security guard eyes Clem and Beatrice's transportation with more than suspicion. He steps outside. I know you're not even thinking about bringing that beast in here, he says. But I was thinking of it, Clem answers quickly. So that's weird that you would say you know what I was thinking because you would be wrong. Clem doesn't crack a smile or move. The guard palms his nightstick. They stare each other down, Clem and the guard. Beatrice thinks that the guard looks like just the sort of security officer who would be thrilled to call the cops and have her and Clem ticketed or arrested for some inane livestock violation that is still on the books from 1823, like no horse riding on public holidays. Clem looks away and leaps down off Humbletonian, leading Beatrice and her over to the corral for collecting shopping carts. He ties Humbletonian's reins to the metal bar, and Beatrice slides down off the curve of her flank. Inside, few people seem to be shopping. Clem says to one young man wearing a Walmart smock, Excuse me, what's going on here? Young man raises his eyebrows but makes no response, waiting for some clue as to how he can assist them. Lots of things are going on here, the boy finally says. I mean, how come Walmart's open, Clem asks. It's freaking Thanksgiving. The boy says nothing. He looks as if he wants to punch Clem. Instead, he stares straight ahead at the dog food he's been pricing. He looks to the back of the shelf as though he can see something golden there that's invisible to everyone else. Clem bends down to see what the boy's looking at. There's nothing there just the back of the mill shelf. Thank you, Clem says quickly. He grabs Beatrice's arm and leads her away. Up front, the store is ready for Christmas. Past Christmas comes an aisle of automotive and craft hobby supplies, and an aisle of hair products and footwear, then an aisle of watches and diamond chip rings. All these aisles dead end at the wall of sporting goods hunting gear. Ladies and menswear is intersected by a row of birthday cards, logic puzzle books, scented candles, deodorant, and toothpaste. 
Beatrice and Clem passed the electronics division. They're sold out of the game Clem was thinking about buying, Dead or Alive 5000. There's a paper sales sign that Clem swipes at. Do you need anything, he asks, while we're here? The fluorescent lighting is beginning to drive Beatrice crazy because she imagines that she can detect its flashing pulse. Nope, let's go. Clem takes a pack of gum, looks at it, then puts it in his pocket. For mom, he says, and they leave quickly without paying for the gum. Outside, Humbletonian is no longer tied up. She is gone, and Beatrice bets it was the security guard. Shit, Clem says, and giggles because by the shopping cart corral, there's a pile of horseshit that Humbletonian left behind. Fuck, Beatrice says and laughs. Clem scans the parking lot. The circles of light underneath each lamp are still there, but there is no horse. You go that way, Clem tells Beatrice. I'll go this way, and I'll meet you around back. We'll flush her out. Clem departs around one side of the giant complex, and Beatrice walks off in the other direction. The store is so long that she feels as though she'll never even reach the corner of it. Beatrice imagines that she is an astronaut dragging a 200-pound spacesuit, and that is why her footsteps seem not to be carrying her forward. She stops. I wouldn't have killed him, Beatrice says out loud and waits until she hears a question from the far side of her brain, from her mother. What would you have done, just let him suffer? Let him go on breathing that bubbly wet breath that sounded like a damn water fountain? Yes, Beatrice answers. Yes, I would have. The Walmart does not seem to end. It goes on and on, windowless and solid. Beatrice thinks of the old cartoons where an illustrator would draw two panels of background, a desert or a pine forest, and then... By bringing one panel in front of the other, he could repeat it and repeat it and repeat it, a duplicated landscape that Wiley Coyote could run through without end. If she had four legs, she'd be able to get around the back of the mall faster. She thinks to skip, but after ten or eleven lengths, her lungs chug and backfire on the cold air. She stops and walks the rest of the way. Behind the shopping center, there are bulldozers, at least twenty of them, and they seem to be huddled with their backs to Beatrice, as if they're in a private conference. It's freezing. Apart from the dozers, there's nothing here except for a gigantic hole. It is tremendous, far larger than a football field, and is filled with water. In the dark, the hole extends beyond the limit of Beatrice's vision. Clem is already standing at the edge, looking down into it, Humbletonian is there too, only she has climbed down into the pit and is walking across the surface of the ice that has formed there. It's like a lake. Maybe one of the bulldozers broke a water pipe while digging. There is a lot of water here, a reservoir's worth of drinking water, or, Beatrice hopes not, frozen sewage. Humbletonian is walking across the ice, bending every now and again to lick the surface. Gross. Woohoo, Humbletonian, Clem yells. Good horse, good horse, he shouts, so that Humbletonian turns from where she is, halfway across the ice. And when she sees Clem and Beatrice, she begins to trot across the very center of the pit toward them, more like a dog than a horse. Her coat is nearly as silver as the ice, and beautiful. Beatrice lifts up her arms and shakes her hips. Woohoo, horsey, she calls. Time slows to a speed where Beatrice can notice every single thing. She notices Humbletonian's muscles, her breath coming out of her flared nostrils and the odd rhythm of her trot. She notices the gorgeous ice and dirt and the lovely darkness, thick like felt, that exists in this ugly place. She can hear each hoof as it falls against the ice. Beauty is standing somewhere nearby, Beatrice thinks, and it's a shadowy person whose exhale becomes Beatrice's inhales, warming her up. And this moment of warmth, this beautiful horse is why Beatrice feels certain a jealous hole cracks open in the ice, a hole that swallows the back legs and hindquarters of Humbletonian faster than a greedy thought. Humbletonian tries to clear the water, to get a hoof back up on solid ice, 
but each clop of her front hooves shatters what she's grabbed and pulls it under with her. There can't be that much water underneath her, but there is. She's not touching the bottom. Humbletonian is flailing. Clem starts to swear, but slowly everything is happening so slowly at first that it seems time will come to a halt and the world behind the shopping center will be all right. It seems as if it might even be possible to ignore the drowning horse altogether, as though Beatrice and her brother are here only in a dream, and they will both wake up very soon. Beatrice reaches her arms even higher. Clem, she says. Clem wrings his hands. He lowers himself into the pit, down to where the ice starts. He is moving slowly, carefully. Humbletonian is thrashing. It's the only sound there is. The water must be freezing. Humbletonian is thrashing in it. Clem, Beatrice says again and again. Clem wrings his hands so hard, he looks as though he might tear them off from his wrist. He steps out onto the edge of the ice and creeps towards Humbletonian. She is in up to her middle. Only her front hooves and her head are above the ice. Clem stops. The horse is twisting and snorting. She is screaming as much as a horse can scream. Clem raises his hands to his face. He takes another step toward the horse. Clem! Beatrice repeats his name a third time. And finally he turns to look at her. A seam has been cut open and Clem right through the very center of his face. She sees it. A seam that says, There is no way to stop this. No fucking way for a man to save a horse drowning in freezing water. Clem stands still. He brings his hands up to his ears and, pressing the small knobs of cartilage there, he stops listening. Quiet moments pass. The static returns as though it were being broadcast from nearby. Humbletonian starts giving up. She falls still. The water has dropped her into a shock. Beatrice can see a lot of white in the horse's eyes as though it had been pried open. It blinks dry air once more for the last time. Humbletonian's head goes under and all Beatrice can see are her forelegs above the barrier of the ice. Her legs kick, emptying what's inside them. It is a gruesome convulsion. She's getting away, Beatrice finally says, and skids on her heels down to where her brother is standing. She passes him and walks out onto the ice. A loud crack bellows from the frozen water, like a whip pushing Beatrice back, away from her horse. Beatrice drops to her knees on the ice, and Humbletonian goes under all the way. Their horse is gone. The water flattens out over her head. Clem lowers his hands. Don't, he says. But Beatrice doesn't listen. She sits down on the ice and watches the hole where Humbletonian went. She slides closer toward it on her knees. The hole doesn't do anything. It is difficult to say what happens next. The silence fills in around Beatrice and Clem like insulation. The two of them stare for a long while, looking down into the black hole where their horse disappeared, waiting maybe for some triumphant geyser, a phoenix or pegasus to rise up out of the hole. Nothing happens. Perhaps 15 minutes pass or maybe half an hour before they recognize what they're staring at, an empty black hole. Clem, Beatrice says with her back still turned to him, still looking at the hole. You know what mom told me? What? She gave the doctors permission to kill dad. Yeah, I know, Clem says. You know? Yeah, she asked me what I thought before she did it, he says. No one asked Beatrice. She sat by her father's hospital bed for days, rubbing lotion into the dry skin of his calves and feet, and no one sent anything to her. No one asked me, she tells Clem. We already knew what you'd say. Since her father's death, Beatrice has tried to turn her parents into two-dimensional pieces of paper she can fold up, tuck into her backpack, and forget about when she does her laundry, picking them out of the lint trap later. Her mother all things bad, her father all things good. But Clem ruins it every time. There's Clem sitting on the ice, shaking his head, saying, 
It's no one's fault, B. It's no one's fault. Beatrice would like to find someone to blame. Even with the static, she sees clearly, as though there were a map in front of her, a map of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. She sees that they arrived here at this future rather than a different one, one with horses. Maybe that future would have been better. But instead they had arrived here to a time when their farm is dead, when Beatrice has moved away to the city, when Clem is stuck in place, and when most nights her mother walks down to the end of the driveway, out to meet the incoming tide in Pennsylvania. Beatrice leans forward, lowering her whole body onto the ice. She pushes herself on her stomach out to where the horse disappeared. She lies there. She rests her cheek there for a long time. She pets her horse through the ice. Don't go any further, Clem yells as Beatrice dips her hand inside the hole into a land that is already lost. That was David Gilbert reading Three Days by Samantha Hunt. The story appeared in The New Yorker in January of 2006 and was included under the title Cortez the Killer in Hunt's collection The Dark Dark, which was published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in 2017. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, David, you were talking before the story about how thematic this story is. Um, what is what do you see as the theme? Well, it's it's kind of taking that idea of family and stories and twisting it into something that's both intimate and larger than life so that there is that sense of things that are no longer wild or like a country that's no longer the country anymore. Uh, the setup of the last remaining farm within now 10 miles of kind of strip mall, the sense of this horse that the father kind of mistakes as this representation of wildness when she says that the horse is the most domesticated of animals and that the father was just mistaking his own lung cancer. And then you get to that end. And again, like that desire for something bigger than yourself, something that is going to be mythic. And in fact, it's just like mm -hmm. a black hole. Uh, the horse is sunk. It's not going to come up and return as, uh, as Pegasus. And yet there is that longing for that, you know, that longing, not only for something greater than yourself, but for things to make sense. Like I love when she finally says to the brother, Clem, about not being told about the father and the mother basically euthanizing him. And she's like, I want someone to blame when she says that. 
the idea that there are gods or a higher power or something that makes sense. And she does both things. The horse sinking into the ice at the end makes it both mythic and not mythic so that you have that really interesting little wobble, which is what I really love in writing when when things aren't quite solid in your hands. So that the horse sinking evokes something that is bigger than itself, but is also just a tragic accident as well. Yeah, because it is a real horse, right? And it is a real horse. <laughs> that line where she describes the horse as like acting like a dog all of a sudden is just killer. Yeah. And yeah. I, what I also really like is that she has talked about this domesticated creature and yet the creature has done something after being kind of corralled at Walmart, has done something relatively wild, which is run away and is now in the middle of um, this frozen pit. The creature still has that instinct, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, it's a construction site outside of the Walmart parking lot. Exactly. And I love the bulldozers that are lined up around it. Yeah. It's funny. I talked to Samantha this week or emailed with her this week about the story. And she said that readers or a number of readers were angry at her for letting the horse die. And that one person even rewrote the story with a happy ending, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and published it. Um, but she said that there was a real horse. You know, her cousin was a farmer and he had told her a story about having to watch his horse drown in a frozen pond. You know, so the roots of the story are very real. And then what she does with it is invest it with this sense of both mythic unreality and and that visceral presence. Yeah, and she even, right off the bat, she nods towards that in such an interesting way when she talks about the Easter decoration still being up, mm-hmm. even though it's Thanksgiving. And the story being called Three Days, and you don't really understand why the story is called Three Days. It's a bit of a a mystery uh, because it takes place over the course of really just an evening. Um, Easter is there and Thanksgiving is there. And then you have the Three Days, which is basically what Easter is about, Three Days. Mm -hmm. And then you have towards the end, she talks about kind of the past and the present and the future, which kind of represents the Three Days. It's just really so thoughtful. Yeah. It's funny. I was going to ask you what you make of the title. And and then I asked her and she said, I asked her actually because she'd changed it for the book. Yeah. Um, the original title was a reference to a Willie Nelson lyric. Of course it was. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I got it all wrong. It's, it's uh, th- three days of pain and sorrow yesterday, today and tomorrow. So, you know, what you picked up with the, the past, present and future, um, obviously, is is drawing from that. And I noticed rereading it that she does have a line where she says, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Yeah, right towards the end. And when she's imagining, like, what if there were wild horses and things like that? Yeah. Yeah. But then she changed it to Cortez the Killer. And that's an interesting switch. Because obviously, you know, it puts the emphasis slightly elsewhere. It puts the emphasis on this idea of myth and remaking myths and and on the idea of who did Cortez kill? You know, what did he kill when he brought European culture to to the new world? Yeah. I think I prefer the three days title for me (laughs) because I don't know if I can really, I can't quite figure out Cortez the killer as as well. I think... uh, Though I like the way it sounds, but I can't quite unwrap it the way I, I can unwrap three days. Yeah. And also, it's she picks Cortez and not Montezuma, who is the sort of original hero of the Aztecs who the mother has fallen in love with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And who's been sold to an amusement park, so now they own him forever. Which I love. I love that kind of... <laughs> she does so well with um, creating what feels like an absurd detail, but by the end of the story, kind of in that George Saunders way, like, oh, it makes total sense and you just buy it. And also it's it's in danger of being too thematically on topic, yet she also totally makes it work in such a wonderful way. Right, because she, she has the mythic and the specificity, right? Yeah, precisely. 
And I also love the whole Atlantis thing that comes up and, mm-hmm. and just giving a detail that maybe the first time you read it, you don't quite get it. But if you were to reread or actually unpack it a little bit, you understand that, oh, that's an Atlantis reference because you kind of have forgot, you've just gone through this very intense horse sequence and then suddenly you have the the mother standing watching the tide come into Pennsylvania and you realize, yeah. oh, wait a second, that's an Atlantis reference. That's a death reference, you know, which fits well with not only the situation with the father, but with the horse that just came before. Yeah. I mean, ironically, the, the Atlantis story doesn't really have anything to do with <laughs> the story she uses it to lead up to, but it does have to do with Samantha Hunt's story. Um, yeah, and and has to do with just that idea of loss, of uh, waking up one day and realizing that so much has been lost. Yeah, um, yeah. In some ways, the the Beatrice character has felt that loss deeply, but hasn't at all processed it. So to see the horse, you know, that was a nice little moment of of processing the loss of yeah. her father. I mean, it's a story that revolves around death and it's it's full of deaths. You know, we start the first paragraph, we have that bloated raccoon. We end with the horse. In the middle, we have the description of the father dying. We even have um, Beatrice herself dying in the video game. She's just wandering around and suddenly she's set upon by ninja warriors and slaughtered yeah. in seconds, you know. To read it from like a technical point of view as as like someone who wants to write stories like this. I love that she she just elides that that she's picked up this raccoon. She doesn't try to like explain anything. You can just have that happen in the in the blank space, in the white space. I mean, my sense is that she's like lifted it up and is looking at it. And right. that people driving by are like, what's Beatrice doing <laughs> with a bloated dead raccoon? Yeah, and then she's holding the dead turkey over the garbage forever. For a long time. I love. I mean, she's holding <laughs> that turkey for what seems like half the twenty story. minutes, <laughs> and, and to the point where it's swaying. But that's what the story does too. Which I, which another reason why I love the title Three Days is because there's such a interesting relationship with time in this story, and how time slows down and speeds up, and there's this static. There is like that gooey idea of time that the story does such a good job of dealing with. And then, of course, whenever you want to deal with time and you want to have fun with it, it's always great to have someone get stoned, too, because that's a way in which, you know, you can really actively deal with with time slowing down. And it's just such a pleasing little moment where the person throws the cigarette butt Mm -hmm. and she's like, it's like an insect bomb. And she knows what she's trying to say, but she knows how it could be heard. And it's that misunderstanding. And she thinks about clarifying it for Clem, um, but the moment has already passed. There's some line like sublime clarification that she says, (laughs) which is such a great line. But there's lots of weird time, like the egg timer comes up. Uh, You know, time definitely is, is front and center in this story. Yeah. I mean, there's a general surreality you know, starting with the Easter decorations and continuing through the landscape. And then once she allows Bee to get stoned, then anything can happen, right? You have her walking down the driveway and squishing the faces of the Lenape, um, <laughs> yeah, which is an which extraordinary moment, you know, where suddenly everything around her is kind of infiltrated with the dead or with, with life. I wondered... You know, that moment when she's playing the video game and she feels as though she hears a man sort of whispering to her and giving her a message, what you think that message might be. I mean, I I definitely had a moment where I was like, okay, I want to figure this out. And it reminded me of a really sweet uh, line in which she's with the father and the father is holding her hand and there's a detail of a tiny mouse, like half captured. Mm -hmm. And then she imagines that the dad is like a boyfriend from a TV show or something like that, which is such a perfect kid detail, you Mm -hmm. know? It's like they have this, obviously, this fantasy life that is outside of family, but also contains family. And there is this real sense that Beatrice is lonely, which is 
right off the bat kind of stated when she's like happy to be in, I assume in New York, but or Philadelphia in a city behind closed doors as she is 30 and unmarried. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, that sense was of, of the intimacy of family and then the intimacy of a lover and, and it being kind of um, combined in that moment that Clem is kind of a fantasy boyfriend there in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, how about you? What'd you think? Well, it makes me think about how destructive the death of the father was. You know, she's lost that voice, which is sort of a deep, loving voice that whispers in her ear, you know, the way her father did. But this whole family has completely fallen apart. Now every family loses its parents eventually. But all three of them have been thrown into this kind of paralysis where, you know, Clem's just moved to the barn and she's moved to the city, but she's just lonely and single behind closed doors and... And the mother is, you know, getting drunk every night and stuck in this world of trying to see her life through myths. And I wonder why this loss was so permanently destructive. Yeah. Well, I liked when she talks about making those judgments of, you know, dad is good, mom is bad. Mm -hmm. And how those are, again, like the point of view of a child. And that starts to kind of come apart when she realizes that her mother and Clem were kind of doing the decent thing. And I think that the father, to me, feels a bit like a Don Quixote, you know, like he's the one, this is his fantasy. And that very sweet moment where he looks at the mother's face and identifies that, yes, farming is over for them. So there's such a gentleness to him that it feels like without him there and with the reality of instead of him being like a boy scout and sleeping you know in the stable above the horse it was just that he was dealing with pain yeah that that reality kind of sets in so losing him whatever kind of soft intimate family fantasy part seems to like get taken away and it's it's cold it's not easter it's thanksgiving you know, things are frozen. Yeah. And in fact, he died in a frozen pond, basically. Yeah. Um, he wasn't He wasn't getting back to nature by sleeping in the barn. Yeah. And again, like such a great detail, you know, and, and also the way then it kind of turns at the end of that paragraph where she can recognize that, oh, it was just lung cancer. But basically, that's just one line. And the rest is the is the kind of warm memory of dad acting like a Boy Scout, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I want to think about the very last line, you know, where she's lying on the ice and dipping her hand in this, you know, land that's that's been lost. And in a way that takes us back to Atlantis, of course. Something has sunk with this horse. The horse has sunk. Everything has has gone under, including the notion of this area as as farm country. It's now Walmart. Do you think that that is a moment of realization for B that she is going to be able to come to terms because of this event, or is this just going to crush her? The thing I like about the story is that she does feel like such a a real person and specific. She's so not thematic, even though the story has lots of themes running through it, that you can imagine that uh, the next day she might feel a bit better. And then the day after she, you know, she's a real human being. So I like that about this, this story, but what goes from, from horror in witnessing the horse sinking to sadness at the horse passing, then finally ends on a, on kind of a very melancholic, uh, almost sweet kind of moment where she's just there for the horse and with the horse even though the horse is no longer there. It's it's um, like already does a lot in that sentence mm-hmm. because she could have said into a land that is lost, you know, which of course would have then made me remember land of the lost from my childhood. <laughs> but, uh, but the already, that's the, the word that kind of tilts it into the melancholic. Like there was nothing to hold on to. It's already lost. And it's that adult feeling of melancholy, you know, when sadness turns to melancholy, because you realize that getting older is about accepting loss, and that loss is built into the whole system. Yeah. 
the horse is both a literal horse who's drowned, and it becomes symbolic of, of just about everything in this story, in a way. From the father to the land to the landscape to her childhood to, you know, yeah. you name it. But the thing that is so well done is she really writes so beautifully about the act of the horse drowning. And it is so sad that kind of front and center, the horse is a real horse, you know, and you, you feel that horse's death and the struggle. And I think that's one of the primary reasons that it stays with me because of that initial feeling of a horse has died in my presence. And then afterwards, when the water stills, that's when all the themes start to come to the surface. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. initially, it's just the horse dying. Yeah. And then the credits roll. And then the credits roll. <laughs> I was thinking about the last time that you were on the podcast, you read a, a story called Leg by Stephen Polanski about a man who basically decides he doesn't want his leg anymore. I was thinking about what the common thread between that and, and Three Days might be. And I, I think it's that you are perhaps drawn to stories in which the central feature can be seen as completely real and as completely metaphorical. Yeah, I mean, that's when something really has that vibration for me. Like I said, I really do like a good, juicy metaphor. <laughs> but I also, I like it when it's delivered in a way that it feels very, very real so that it can operate on both planes. It is like those things where you're dealing with immediate mystery in a way, you know, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. the mystery that is family, that is forever. We're always unpacking, no matter how far away we get or how deep the water is. It always is, is coming back. And I think that's what this story does too. It makes family mystery yet all, mysterious, but also very real. Well, thank you so much, David. Oh, thank you for letting me talk about this great story. Samantha Hunt is the author of three novels, Mr. Splitfoot, The Invention of Everything Else, and The Seas, for which she won the National Book Foundation's 5 Under 35 Award in 2006. Her story collection, The Dark Dark, was published in 2017. David Gilbert is the author of the story collection Remote Feed and two novels, The Normals and And Sons, which was named one of the best books of 2013 by The Washington Post, The Guardian, and The New Yorker. He's been publishing fiction in the magazine since 1996. You can download more than 150 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcasts section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find The Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. From PR.